What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Jeff Lewis is a co-founder of Bedrock Capital. In this conversation, we discuss his time at Founders Fund, what he learned from working with Peter Thiel, why he started Bedrock, what is a narrative violation and why does he look for them, what he thinks about new media models, why founders are humans and humans make mistakes, and why growth valuations are overvalued. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jeff, and he's incredibly entertaining and intelligent, so I hope you enjoy it as well. Before we get started, though, I want to talk about the two sponsors that made this episode possible. The first is BlockFi. If Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have any chance of ever becoming the next global reserve currency, we need a lot more infrastructure and wealth management services built. That's exactly what BlockFi is doing. In fact, they just announced a brand new $30 million Series B funding that we participated in that will empower them to continue building out the three existing products along with a new Bitcoin rewards credit card. The three existing products are US dollar loans against your crypto as collateral, an interest-bearing account for your crypto deposits, and also a crypto exchange that lets you buy and sell cryptocurrencies. BlockFi's absolutely been killing it. They've doubled revenue in the last two months, and they've 20X'd in the last year. They know exactly what they're doing, and lots and lots of users are flocking to their service. So head on over to blockfi.com slash pomp. Again, that's blockfi.com slash pomp, and check them out. At BlockFi.com slash POMP, you may even get a little surprise. Now, our second sponsor is Unstoppable Domains. Many of you have probably heard about YouTube taking down crypto-related content or MetaMask getting removed from the Google Play Store. Well, the decentralized web is going to make that kind of censorship impossible. That's right. Unstoppable Domains allows you to create a .crypto domain and then use it in your own hosting where only you can take down the domain. You can also use your .crypto domain to get paid. So you don't have to use the hex addresses anymore for Bitcoin. I've got pomp.crypto and I can use it to get paid. It's a huge improvement for sending Bitcoin and everyone and every wallet should use this. You can go to Trust Wallet, Atomic Wallet, and Coinomi right now, type a .crypto domain into the send field and pay someone. In order to onboard the next billion people, we can't use the hex addresses. It's just too hard. Everyone already uses domain names, and so they understand that system if they're on the internet. So head to unstoppabledomains.com right now, unstoppabledomains.com, and check out what they're doing, buy a domain, and start using it today. The future of the decentralized web starts with unstoppabledomains.com. Now remember, Off the Chain's not only a podcast. I also write a daily email to over 40,000 investors. You can go to offthechain.substack.com to subscribe. Also, go to YouTube, search Anthony Pompliano, and go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's booming. All right, let's get into this episode with Jeff. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm super excited about this conversation. We're all... uh 
Got a bunch of coffee ready to go. <laughs> Jeff's here. Um, dude, this is going to be fun. Uh, Looking forward for, to it. Yeah, thanks for coming to do it. Um, let's start off with your background pre-Founders Fund, because uh, I don't think that you were on a path to become an investor. No, I was. Uh, I was definitely. Uh, I, I. I don't think I was really on any path. It was. It was a, a pathless existence prior to, prior to actually starting my company. And so the backstory is: grew up in Canada, sort of a pretty unstable childhood. And so when I graduated from uh, from college, I was really wanted to optimize for stability. So I uh, I joined a large American multinational company, uh, Procter and Gamble, uh, and quickly realized that uh, stability wasn't for me. Uh, found it. <laughs> Extremely boring, but I was I, I I knew that I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial, and so I stuck around until I got my green card, and then shortly after I did, uh, I got out of there uh, and got to San Francisco and decided that I wanted to actually optimize for for hanging around smart people uh, rather than stability. And I figured if I could just meet a lot of really smart, interesting people, I'd sort of figure out what I wanted to wanted to do, uh, and sort of serendipitously met a number of the folks that were sort of in at the time what was called the PayPal Mafia, just through friends and friends of friends, ended up getting recruited uh, to join uh, Peter Thiel's hedge fund, which is called Clarium Capital. Uh, and so I joined that hedge fund in sort of a pretty undefined role, uh, sort of a you know um, pretty unclear role, sort of unclear what I was going to be doing, but I knew I'd be working with extremely smart people, Peter, Peter and others there. My timing was unfortunately really bad. I joined I joined Clarium two weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed, so I could not have picked a, a worse time for my foray into the the world of finance. Uh, but the upshot of that experience was I shared an office with an absolutely brilliant uh, engineer, this guy Trevor Austin, and we ended up becoming friends and uh, decided we wanted to start a business together. And you know, the the, the advice I give entrepreneurs now is uh, you shouldn't start a business for the sake of starting a business. You should have sort of a, a really clear mission of what you want to do. I actually didn't follow that advice. I knew that I just wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So did Trevor. And so I ended up cycling through a few concepts. Uh, initially, we landed on uh, something called Udors, which was basically, uh, I would say it's actually an early version of, of Pinterest meets Instagram, executed horribly. So people sort of tag places, brands, et cetera, mm -hmm. in their photos. This was in 2009. The execution was terrible. We got no users, a sort of a laughing stock. You know, we'd, we'd raised half a million dollars from VCs, including Founders Fund, and the business was was clearly going to go nowhere. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, and, and Trevor, to his to his credit, sort of realized that and ended up joining Palantir. Uh, so I was sort of on my own there as a founder. You know, we had a few hundred K left in the bank. And I was like, I just can't fail. Because for me, failure wasn't an option. I mean, it's like I, I'd know where else, you know, I could have gone, maybe gone back to Clarium or something. But I ended up sort of pivoting the business, putting together a new uh, team uh, of co-founders, Ash and Oz, and we ended up turning that business into something called Top Guest, which I, I think the, pi the pithy way to describe it would be uh, sort of a Cambridge Analytica for hotels and airlines. And so we were <laughs> we were pulling a lot of social data with people's permission. We got we got the permission uh, and uh, giving them loyalty points from programs like United Mileage Plus, uh, Starwood Preferred Guests at the time, et cetera, in exchange for sharing their social data. So sort of a enabling SaaS tool for these hotels and airlines. This was circa 2010. Realized that business, you know, realized sort of relatively good at relatively good at selling into customers. But we didn't have great product market fit, so we ended up selling it. It was a reasonably good, you know, not huge, but reasonably good financial outcome for me. Went from you know forty thousand dollars in credit card debt to 
you know, having, you know, some money in my bank account, which was nice. In the positives. <laughs> in the positives. That was a- I, I always joke, that's the first step to like uh, financial freedom, right? Is go from negative to positive and then worry about what the positive number is. Oh, it was, it was, re- it was really life changing. So sort of like, you know, I'd, I'd lived my, my early career had been very much in sort of this matrix type environment. So, you know, you're, you're at a place like Procter & Gamble. There's this existing structure. It's been around for hundreds of years. You know, there was a lot less true at Clarium. It felt a lot more generative. You could you could sort of do new things. Uh, sort of a lot of openness to to folks trying different projects. And then when when we actually left and, I, and we started the business, uh, the startup, uh, you're just completely out of the matrix. And and so it's sort of like you you somehow have to have to just make it work. And then. You know, after I sold the company, what I realized was uh, I wasn't very good at executing uh, these these technology businesses, but I felt like the ideas were actually quite good. So the idea for Udors I felt was a very good idea later, you know, proven by folks like Instagram and Pinterest who executed phenomenally well. You know, the idea for Top Guest, I would argue, you know, what we we're trying to do is make travel more personal. I'd sort of argue that Airbnb sort of ended up doing that in sort of a, a different way. And so figured that I should try and optimize uh, in a direction uh, towards uh, towards uh, figuring out what ideas are going to work in the future, but not actually having to build the things the things the things myself, which is what led me to Founders Fund. What, what um one of the things you said that uh, I've heard over and over again about Peter's just entire world is uh, you came on to Clarium with like an undefined role, and I think a lot of people, uh, especially in startup world, like they're trying to like textbook, hey, what should I do? Okay, we have a role, let's go find somebody. And if you listen to you know Peter Thiel, uh, Keith Raboyce, so a lot of these folks are like, look, find young people who uh, are kind of undervalued given what their potential is, uh, and even if you don't have a role, like just get them in the door, and if they're good, they'll figure out how to create value, right? And um, it sounds like that was something that you kind of were the person being plugged in without that defined role, was that something that you thought was a positive or a negative at the time? Oh, I thought, well, I, I thought it was hugely positive. And, okay. and one of the things it does, it engenders tremendous loyalty. So if you give a young person, you know, a chance uh, who, who really doesn't have a, a traditional background, I mean, I didn't go to Stanford or Ivy League school. I was working in, you know, CPG marketing. And so, uh, and so when someone gives you a chance and, and takes a chance on you, it engenders a lot of loyalty and, and uh, there is an ARB. So, mm-hmm. you know, ideally, uh, you know, whoever is, and we, we try and do this at Bedrock, my firm now, we like to hire, uh, you know, young, curious folks who maybe aren't from the traditional, traditional backgrounds. We, we look for that with our entrepreneurs as well. Uh, there's obviously an ARB on the pricing that you can get if you find these people and you're, and you're right about it. And then over time the arb closes, but 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 over time you know you, you can sort of build these uh, these powerful positive sum relationships with with folks that that were sort of underestimated by the market for sure. Um, and so when you started to optimize for the investing side versus the execution side, uh, you went straight to Founders Fund. Or, yes. Or, okay. And what was kind of the thought process there? You were just going to um, invest in early stage, kind of full stack. What, what was kind of the, the idea? Well the, well, the thought process, the thought process on my end was uh, I, I really wanted to, to be an investor and do VC, and uh, and they were the VCs that I knew and that I was <laughs> that I, I was friendly with with some of them, uh, and uh, and they were the ones that, that gave me a job. I don't think if I had I don't think if I'd applied to Benchmark or Sequoia, they would have they would have reviewed my resume. But but Founders Fund took me you know somewhat seriously, and I went in there for some interviews. And really, initially, it was sort of I thought I'd stick around for a year and then start another business. I mean, my whole ex post analysis of sort of the top guest Udors experience was uh, the execution was terrible. Uh, yet we still managed to make money uh, for ourselves and for the investors. So I thought if we could actually start another business where the execution was good, uh, that that could actually be 
Very good. So I was quite anchored on going off and, and starting another company. But really what happened was I just fell in love with with venture capital investing. Mm-hmm. And one of the awesome things, many awesome things about Founders Fund, but one of the one of the particularly awesome things is that, you know, I joined quite junior. I was the newest person on the investment team, but I was empowered to make investments. And really the only way you can learn about investing is through actually independently sort of sourcing and, and making investments. Obviously, you debate things as a team and, and people weigh in. Uh, and really, my second deal uh, on the team, I'd been there for four months, uh, was Lyft. I sort of saw it out of the corner of my eye and uh, led the first financing round in, in that company after they'd pivoted from Zimride uh, and joined the board. And then from there, it sort of uh, it sort of kept going and, and just got more and more into it and excited about excited about sort of finding these finding these these interesting opportunities and working with these great founders. Why did you like Lyft? What was the thought process? Well, let's see. You know, at the time, so rewind back to 2012, uh, Uber was just a black car business. Mm-hmm. They were experimenting with taxis. Uh, they hadn't done any of the UberX stuff. So there was no concept of peer-to-peer mm-hmm. ride sharing. There was no concept of regular people driving other regular people around. There were two companies uh, in, in 2012 that started experimenting with that. It was Lyft and, it, and Sidecar were the mm-hmm. two. And uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of the people at the time were joking about was you had these couple dozen lift cars in the city. They had these fuzzy pink mustaches on them. And uh, th- those caught my eye. So I, I downloaded the app and, and tried it and ended up uh, meeting meeting with the founders with my colleague, Scott Nolan, and, and just really falling for the founders vision of what peer to peer ride sharing could unlock. And they really did pioneer that idea of regular people driving other regular people, you know, about the sidecar people as well. They seemed a lot less good than Lyft. And then there's sort of these, you know, one of the things I like to, to sort of keep in mind as an investor is oftentimes the very small things, the things that people don't think much about, uh, can actually be very important. And so you take the name Lyft. Uh, it's sort of a positive, friendly name. Uh, Uber is sort of this, you know, uh, sort of uh, snobby, snobby name. So, so there's a sense which I thought was sort of a more friendly brand. And that translated from a business standpoint uh, into the founders, even very early on, correctly focusing on optimizing for supply. So whenever you're building a marketplace, obviously you've got to get supply, got to get demand. They correctly identified was, we have to make this an incredible experience for the drivers. The riders will come. Like there is demand to get around cities uh, cheaper without having to drive. And so they really uh, optimized to the extreme for making it a great experience for the drivers. Things like the, the fist bump, which is one of the things they did early on, um, You know, encouraging conversation. I remember being on the board. I, I I don't really like talking very much in cars, so I kept trying to trying to convince. Can you do a silent button, please? And <laughs> Logan, the CEO, kept saying, "No, we're not doing that. It's not friendly. We're friendly." And I was like, "Come on, I need I need a silent button." But it turned out they were right, and so they, yeah. they did all of these things early on to optimize for supply, and uh, and um, and yeah, you know, I remember having the conversation with uh, with some of my partners at Founders Fund, and the question at the time we we invested at sort of a sub one hundred million dollar valuation. The question was, can this 10x? Uh, can we see this being a billion dollar company? And sort of, uh, you know, three of the partners uh, thought thought it could be, and and one thought it couldn't be. And uh, and uh, luckily, it's 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 grown into a much bigger company than that. Yeah. The um, first of all, Sidecar is a blast from the past. <laughs> in 2014, uh, in San Francisco, I, that's actually the first ride sharing uh, company that I downloaded was uh, Interesting. Sidecar. Uh, and then they went out of business like two three years later. Um, and uh, with Lyft, people forget the pink mustaches and the fist bump. Like it was kind of weird. 
right? But it was if you were in the group, right, or kind of in that club, it was almost like a point of pride, right, versus the other ones who just didn't have that type of stuff. Um, and then uh, you guys uh, invested in a number of different rounds, right, not just that first time. We we did the first one, and and we we did we did some we did some follow on investing. Um, you know the the challenge with that company, and and it's you know uh, now that the company is I would argue executing far better than Uber, uh, and and is a, a much a much more well run company. Uh, it's easy to sort of uh, gloss over the hard times, but the challenge with that business was we were actually competing against a ferociously uh, a ferociously aggressive competitor uh, in Uber. And so, um, you know, at the time, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, I mean, that was a formidable company uh, to be competing against. And they, they very quickly uh, wised up to the fact that peer-to-peer was actually going to be the future of this market, uh, cloned Lyft uh, by launching UberX, uh, had more access to capital, or were able to raise more capital. And we were in sort of a crazy uh, price war and war for market share and war for raising capital because they're both very capital intensive businesses to get to scale uh, with um, with Uber. And so it was a really rocky road. And those founders, John and Logan, I think are heroic heroic and like massively underestimated mm-hmm. to survive those early years. Quite frankly, it was also my first board. So sort of me, the founders, we had one other, one other board member. And uh, Emotionally, it was a, a pretty crazy roller coaster as, as a first board seat as a you know twenty something VC. Yeah. <laughs> it's very That's difficult. Awesome. <laughs> what, talk to me about the decision making process inside a founders fund, right? Because um, you know most venture capital funds have a pretty uh, standardized and strict. Hey, we're going to meet every Monday. We're going to have the founders come in and pitch, and like you know we have to get the consensus or some majority. Uh, and like it operates like a VC fund. Everything I've heard is. Founders Fund's very, very different. And uh, it'll lead to this idea that I have of like Founders Fund is one of the only firms that has original thought left. Um, but kind of how does how do decisions get made internally that's different than some of these other firms? Sure. So, you know, I can't speak for how it works today. Yeah. Haven't been there for a few years since, since we started Bedrock. But uh, but back then, yeah, it was a, you know, and anyone was empowered to source investments. If you're on the investment team, you can source investments. And then you've You've got to build a really strong case, and and there's a lot of spirited and intense debate and a willingness to really uh, hear out different perspectives and 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 try and get to the truth about a company. And so I remember, you know, before I'd even joined the team, I was I was invited uh, on an offsite uh, that that they were organizing, and I remember that I was sort of pulled into this late night debate about a prospective investment, um, even though I had sort of very limited context, and you know my opinion was sort of heard out and valued and taken into account, and. That is kind of the firm it is. There's a it's a it's a lot less uh, you know top down hierarchical than I think than I think many of the other firms are, and we've we've really tried to take a page from that playbook and and how we build Bedrock for sure. Um, and last thing on Founders Fund, just um, takeaways from working with Peter, and and I think he's become uh, over time like this mythical f- figure. Um, but uh, when you talk to people who are uh, spending a lot of time with him, he's actually very rational. He's very kind of. Uh, pragmatic except like what what just do you take away from working with somebody like that well lots to start uh, <laughs> we, i mean we don't have that much time <laughs> I, I look i mean the reality i've learned more from le- learn more from working with him than I've, I've learned from from any other any other sort of person that i've worked with in my life or any other experience there's just uh, you know tremendous tremendous amount of learning from him you know uh i'd say uh, I, I was very lucky to have uh to have started working for him before uh, he was fully valued by the market so i think he was he was seen as very talented very successful but he's obviously 
I've become much more successful since. Um, you know, I'd say the the number one learning um, that I took away would be you have to analyze uh, businesses, um, things, things, things that happen in life, uh, the world on all of these different layers. And actually, the most interesting and important insights uh, are these on these subtextual layers. And so that leads one to actually. Uh, you need to be quite interdisciplinary. So you need to think about the psychology around a business. You need to think about psychology of the founders, psychosocially, why other investors might might miss an opportunity. Um, uh, uh, sort of why, uh, what what sort of why the company, why the business model uh, would resonate in sort of a really long time horizon. And so it's sort of these these multiple layers, and and quite frankly, drilling down on seemingly small decisions that that entrepreneurs have made. It's like, well, why did you? Why did you launch this at this period of time, or mm-hmm. why, why is this the name of the company, or, or why did you hire this specific person? If you, if you actually drill down deep enough, these can yield uh, these types of questions can yield uh, very important insights. And then, obviously, the sort of ethos of of questioning uh, questioning uh, things that that most folks would just would just assume are are are, are, are true, questioning uh, you know um, conventional wisdom, uh, and always trying to get to your own your own perspective and. And the only way you can learn that uh, is is really through an osmosis of working with someone for a really long period of time. And so you sort of can't can't teach in a class. You sort of have to have to observe it firsthand over many years. I was I was lucky to have had that experience. And then uh, you guys leave and start Bedrock. What was the idea for behind doing that? Well, the idea was really I'd had an amazing run at Founders Fund, and it's sort of been an amazing uh, experience. Got to invest in phenomenal companies, work with great entrepreneurs uh, across multiple different sectors. Uh, you know, New Bank in Brazil, FinTech, RigUp, which we're now large investors in at Bedrock. And I'd also along the way built uh, just a great business relationship and friendship with my now partner at Bedrock, uh, Eric Stromberg. He was actually the first entrepreneur I invested in at Founders Fund, uh, right after I joined, he was building a Netflix for eBooks called Oyster. Uh, we'd been friends before that. I then worked with him as a board member, and he was the CEO. And we had sort of a very unique, uh, a very unique yin and yang in terms of business partnership. Uh, and I'd never lost my desire to build to build something of my own. And so it was sort of this question of. Uh, is there a is there a way to to do what what we love doing, which is venture investing, but also uh, sort of uh, get get back out of the matrix a little bit and try and create our own universe? And so that was kind of the thought process, and uh, and and the strategy is really uh, is really to not make very many investments because we don't think there are very many good companies, and so it's sort of uh, we go go quite slow. We only make a few investments every you know every quarter. And then we really uh, concentrate capital, triple, triple, quadruple down uh, into 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 the things that work. So 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 far so good. Yeah. And what does that look like when you say kind of build these concentrated bets? Because I think uh, there that was a very um, popular strategy in kind of the early days of venture capital. Right. You know, Sequoia's first one I think had like nine investments in it. Right. Um, and then we went through a phase of like we'll call it spray and pray. Right. Where it was let's put 30, 40, 50 companies in a fund. Um, and now, you know, there's you guys, I think even like the, uh, the Chamath and kind of social capital world, th- there's a couple of people who are saying, Hey, wait a minute, this concentrated bet idea is actually better if you're right on the, on the bets. Um, what does that look like in terms of when do you first start to invest? And then do you invest in every round from there? Kind of what's the strategy in terms of building that concentrated, um, you know, kind of allocation? 
Sure. So the strategy is that the companies that are really working, uh, we never want them to actually uh, go to market and do a financing process. And so that's sort of the basic the basic ethos is, in theory, if you're an entrepreneur and you have a business that's really working uh, and you like your existing investors, they don't mess with you. They give you advice. They're sounding boards, but they don't try and run the business for you, which is something that we're uh, very uh, you know, religious, but we don't, we don't want to run the businesses for the founders. Uh, you shouldn't actually have to waste time going up and down uh, Sand Hill Road, pitching a lot of firms. The capital should just be ver- very easy to get as you hit milestones, as you grow. So in practice, we've done that with, with RigUp, which is a marketplace for blue-collar labor. Um, and uh, you know we invested initially in the Series B right after we started the firm. Uh, we've invested, I think, six subsequent times since wow. then, such that we've scaled up what was initially a $1 million uh, position, a little over $1 million. Uh, to north of at this point eighty five million dollars into that into that single company, and uh, and and you, in order to execute this strategy, you actually have to the founders have to actually like you, and so we we actually try and <laughs> we try and we try and find uh, you know I think that's sort of a underrated underrated attribute of uh, of being a good VC is you you have to sort of have to have the right chemistry with the founders. I mean not mm-hmm. not every VC is for every founder. I'm not for everyone, you know, not every founder's for me. Eric, same thing. There's certain, you know, you sort of have to have that chemistry. And and if you have that, uh, you can really concentrate uh, capital into ones that are working. So the strategy is basically if they're good, we don't ever want anyone else to see them. Mm-hmm. And and part of this strategy is you'll invest C Series A. Do you want to come in in the kind of the A or the B? Like, like where do you start that relationship? And then from there, you guys are kind of the uh, the sugar daddy, if you will, and if everything goes well. So there's sort of one. Um, we're trying to optimize against sort of a, one vector. Uh, the vector is basically the current fund we're investing out of uh, uh, manages 350 million dollars, and uh, we want to at least six x the fund. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find at least six companies uh, over the course of a few years. Uh, each of which will will, will return three hundred fifty million dollars, and so if you have that as sort of your your vector that you're trying to optimize for, you actually can't really have any other rules because doing that in and of itself is just is just so hard. And so it's this it's this sort of crazy search problem. Uh, you've got to find these companies somehow, uh, and you have to uh, can get get to a narrative that you actually believe uh, that's true as an investment team uh, on why over many years we can scale up a position such that it can return the entire fund, and so. That leads us to being pretty agnostic in terms of when we first get involved. I'd say that you know, seed Series A, mostly Series sort of Series A, Series B, uh, tends to be for us the right place because it's a moment in time where there's there's something that you can sort of tell is working, but not everyone can tell it's working. So you can sort of get involved uh, at, at a moment in time before sort of everyone realizes it's working. You know, we sort of did that with uh, with a company called Clearbit. We did it with uh, with um, with uh, the athletic and, and others, but uh, no rules beyond uh, beyond. We're trying to trying to find a number of companies that will return three hundred fifty million dollars a piece. I love it. Um, one of the things that you uh, you were very loud about early on that I think uh, people kind of were like, "What the hell is he talking about?" And now has uh, become a popular term is uh, narrative violation. <laughs> um, and uh, when I first saw you say it uh, on Twitter, I literally remember saying to myself, "Like, I don't know if he's right or not." But that is going to fucking fly if it catches on because it's just such a clear articulation of an idea. Where did that come from and kind of like why is that the thing that you guys really kind of latched on to? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I will I will give the disclaimer that I, I do worry that it's be, it's become uh, somewhat somewhat uh, is really caught on very powerfully. And whenever everyone starts using a term, uh, there's always a risk that it's it's being way overused right now. So I do want to <laughs> I do want to note that I uh, that I that I've, I've, I've definitely I'm definitely using it less these days. It is still our is it is Jeff <laughs> narr- uh, narrative violating his own term. <laughs> I, I might be narrative violating. You know, I think there's these orthogonal terms that we like. So there's this one that actually someone who I met over Twitter came up with, which I've sort of, I'm going to shamelessly ape, which is uh, narrative, narrative void. And so we like to find these companies where there is, there's just no narrative around them. There's sort of these weird idiosyncratic businesses. Um, you know, I, I think one could argue that something like a, something like a, a Lambda school was that when we invested, certainly uh, narrative violation would be, would be rig up where you sort of have all of this energy around, uh, around climate, clean energy, uh, and 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 sort of there was early on the, the business initially started off in the oil and gas industry as a marketplace for labor there. Uh, that was a very un- unpopular sector, sort of ignored in terms of the popular narrative. Uh, and then uh, so so that would be a narrative violation, you know, something like land maybe was a narrative void. There was sort of no one could really categorize what it was. And uh, and then there's this whole idea of narrative mirages, which is. VCs, as everyone knows, uh, tend to be incredibly herd-like, and these popular narratives can really lead to to very frenzied behavior, and and we want to always always avoid those. And so, I think where we initially, uh, I think I initially heard the term on a maybe as a Jordan Peterson podcast. I think he <laughs> he may have used it. He used it in a very different context. We use it in an investing context. We're talking about markets, companies. I think he used it in sort of a a different context, and it it sort of stuck with us. And we wanted to see could we build out a build out sort of thought piece around this. We wrote our letter, which we published to our website in 2018, uh, and really didn't do much to, to get it out there. And over the last few years, it sort of has re- has really just taken off and, and sort of really been been read by by lots of folks and, and people people reach out all the time. So it, it's this idea of, um, you know, most popular narratives, uh, uh, you know, are, are sort of they're often true, but people often believe they're more true than they are, or something like that. So you need to question it. Yeah. And and part of this is like in investing, the best investments to make are the non-consensus investment, and you got to be right. right. So if you do something different than everyone else and you're right, there's a lot of money to be made. If you do something that's different than everyone else and you're wrong, then like you're just the idiot. Right. It's kind of the way I think about it. And so um, the narrative violation it's not just about, hey, everyone thinks X is true. We're going to go do Y. It's you have to have a reason for it. Right. And I think that's the part that kind of gets lost. And now that it's being overused, it's like almost become cool. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was cool just to start a company. Right. And, but that was kind of the the tail end of um, that being cool. Now, all of a sudden, you see people saying, oh, this is a narrative violation. Well, like, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Right. And I think that's a really important piece of of what you guys have done is you've proven time and again that you found something that wasn't consensus uh, and it's continued to work. Right. And you guys have kind of been right in doing that. Yes. I, I don't like the non-consensus and right uh, framing. So I think that's sort of the benchmark, what benchmark says. So I'll let them own that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep we'll keep narrative violation over here. You know, our okay. name, our name sounds similar. Bedrock benchmark. So we need some differentiation from them. And so I, I, I think I, I will stick Marks with narrative is, violation. No, I think Howard <laughs> Marks is the first one to say is to say it in like a I think it was like a 1992. I, I'll probably get the year wrong, but I think he was one of the first people to say, like, look, you got to have to do something different than everyone else and be right. He was talking about it more like fixed income type stuff. But uh, but but benchmark might have borrowed that from. In, interesting. Well, I I will. I think that I do think the sort of incremental 
uh, piece that hopefully is somewhat generative for folks uh, who, who do sort of think about these narrative violations is that um, definitionally uh, in the term, you sort of have to ask, well, where do the narratives come from? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and more often than not, uh, the, the most dominant narratives come from come from the media, and so there's a there's a sense in which if you actually are pursuing investments that are that are counter narrative, uh, you actually want to be looking for things that um, either the media is not writing about, uh, they're not talking about, or oftentimes things that they're they're critical of, and and that's sort of an additional lens that you can apply as an investor uh, to finding these companies. Uh, narrative mirage is another part of this, right? So it's kind of um the narrative violation is the thing that is different, but also these narrative mirages are the things that everyone's talking about that actually may be incorrect. Uh, I know you guys have some thoughts here, uh, like around scooters and things like that. Maybe talk a little bit about how you think about the narrative mirage. Certainly. So I'd say one that that, that we've thought has been a narrative mirage for a while has actually been the, the whole frenzy around direct-to-consumer brands over the last number of years. And so, you know, we founded Bedrock in late 2017. Uh, we haven't made a single direct-to-consumer brand investment. There's not a single one in our portfolio. Uh, and the reason why was because you had uh, the investors valuing these businesses as technology businesses when they're, in fact, they're, they're more like a Procter & Gamble a or CPG, a yeah. CPG business. And so that's something that we've argued uh, you know, behind the scenes with, with folks in our, in our world. That are, are, we think a lot of these D2C businesses are our narrative mirages and 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 now just recently the narratives very sharply turned against them. You only need one or two of them to get in the public <laughs> well, market yeah, and get slammed. The Casper <laughs> IPO, you have the brand, brandless uh, bankruptcy, and you know this all very un unfortunate stuff. And these are great founders. It's, it, it sucks. It's happening. But you have sort of the Casper IPO, the brandless bankruptcy. Uh, you've got the the FTC stopping mm -hmm. the stopping the the Harry's acquisition. I mean that that must just be brutal. If you're you, you think you've sold your company and, and now you, now and and in fact and the you government haven't. says no. The yeah, government yeah. says no. You sort of go back and got to go back and 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 ma and make it work. I mean, man. Uh, so so in fact there might actually be so what that means is uh, there might actually be opportunities in direct to consumer brands in the future mm -hmm. and the valuations are probably going to get rationalized mm -hmm. uh, because of these developments. So that would be an example of something that was a narrative mirage. You know, we've we've remained consistent uh, that that there, when we started the firm, we launched it into uh, we launched it into two things: the crypto craze, which I'm, you know, I think that is going to be long term, right? Uh, and and the uh, I think we're aligned on that, and this and the scooter craze, uh, which we've which we've been uh, very uh, very consistent on that we are we are very skeptical of, and we think it's a, a narrative mirage, and and uh, and and it's sort of this uh, this this market where it sort of works particularly well on every narrative layer. And so if you sort of unpack it, uh, you know, sort of, there are all these layers to a narrative. So you've got founder, you've got company, you've got market, uh, you know, you've got society. Uh, and so from a founder layer, it's sort of, you know, the founders of the scooter companies generally worked at the ride sharing companies. They were generally at Uber or Lyft and in some cases both. So it's like, okay, it's sort of a straight line to ride sharing. You know, the market sort of, again, straight line to Lyft and Uber. This is for short distances, last mile, et cetera. Uh, the, uh, you know, societally, they're sort of good for the world. And so in a world where we're talking a lot about climate change, sort of this, you know, nice- Electric scooters, man. <laughs> nice, nice thought that we can all just ride around on our electric scooters. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, uh, you know 20 degrees outside and snowing or raining or whatever, we'll still just ride the electric scooters everywhere. Uh, you know, sort of inconvenient. They don't work when the weather's not weather's not great. 
Uh, they don't really work very well on steep hills, but we just ignore those problems. We've got this climate change issue, so we can all ride our electric scooters. So there's a sense in which when it's hyper good for society and you can draw a straight line to this category that has worked, uh, you get a lot of frenzy and heat around it. And then if you actually really dig in uh, to the businesses as we as we have with with one of them, um, it turns out that uh, it turns out that they're they're not necessarily great businesses. Now that's not to say that one or two of them is not going to work to some degree. And I'm, I'm certainly I like the entrepreneurs. I'm rooting for them. But uh, but I think the category is at this point definitively was a narrative mirage. Yeah. Um, and then crypto. Where's the conviction there? Kind of what, why so heavily convicted on that? Given you guys are fairly critical of other things that people are excited about, right? Because in 2017, there's a lot of people excited about crypto. And we didn't do anything in 20. We didn't do anything. Oh, did. No, oh, correct. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> when did you guys start to do things in crypto? Was that more like 18 bear market? Well, I'm not going to say exactly what we've done, but okay. we we uh, we did, we yes we we uh, we uh, we got involved in crypto uh, at uh, at a at the at a very at, when, at, a, at a moment in time when it was very unpopular to do anything in crypto. Uh, that's smart. all I'll say now. I'm not going to disclose that, any more details. That, that's all. That's all you need to say. <laughs> um, you guys recently announced uh, the athletics. So I want to talk about a couple of the investments you guys made, and uh, some of this we agree on, some of it we don't. Um, what's the logic behind the athletic, right? And for those that don't know, the athletic is uh, it's a content business that essentially said, "Look, we're going to go find the best reporters at uh, local sports reporters. Um, we're going to." pay them well, we're going to give them kind of more autonomy, and we're going to wrap this up into a subscription business. I think it's like 10 bucks a month, 60 bucks a year. Uh, and if you subscribe, you now get access to, quote unquote, the best sports reporting uh, on the planet. Um, the business has grown very nicely. Uh, and then you guys just made a pretty big investment. So what's the the thought process there? Cool. So yeah, that's another one where we've we've made a number of investments. So we've scaled into it over three separate financing rounds. So we always, you know, we always like to start with the the entrepreneurs and the founders. And so if you sort of rewind to to shortly before we started Bedrock, uh, my partner Eric Stromberg, I was at a Y Combinator demo day. I think it's the last YC demo day we've attended. We don't we don't really go to those anymore, but the last YC demo day. Um, and uh, you know, there are all these presentations. Then after the demo day, you have all of the all of the investors sort of swarm the hot companies. And so Eric, uh, to his credit, was looking for. Uh, the founders that weren't being swarmed by investors. You know, the two founders of the athletic, Alex and Adam, were sort of standing in the corner, uh, not really. No one was talking to them. No one wanted to hear about the business. And uh, so Eric went up and started talking to them, and and almost made a seed investment, but uh, but didn't. Unfortunately, it would have been a great investment. But kept in touch with them, built the relationship over a number of years. And because he'd been working uh, on Oyster, which was a, mm-hmm. a subscription business as well, that wasn't a huge success. Uh, it was acquired by Google, but wasn't a huge financial success. Um, had really spent a lot of time thinking deeply about the mechanics of what makes a great subscription business like a Netflix. Like, what do you need to have? And there are a few things that he he gained very high conviction that need to be true. And and by extension, we at Bedrock sort of had a, had an ethos around with subscription. One is, uh, you know, retention is 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 just everything. And so you want these sort of ultra high retention businesses uh, where where you have sort of very low churn. Two is uh, you need differentiated uh, proprietary content that you just sort of can't get, uh, can't get it anywhere else. You need passionately loyal uh, readers or, or listeners um, who are passionately loyal to the actual content creators, mm-hmm. uh, and then you need some sort of um, uh, some sort of winner take all dynamic uh, on a, on a market by market level. And so with the athletic, what's so interesting about sports is um, you know in every any given market. 
there are a handful of, of, of teams or a handful of sports that people are really passionate about. Mm-hmm. There are a handful of writers that sort of real people do passionately follow. And if you can actually, by having great retention through a paid subscription, pay these writers, these content creators more than anyone else, you can create this phenomenal flywheel where you basically lock up uh, these local sports media monopolies with these great writers. You give them a platform to grow their reach. Uh, and the economics work over time because the retention of the businesses is astronomical. It's something like uh, 80% one-year retention, which is sort of well north of Netflix, well north of Unbelievable Spotify. Unbelievable numbers. Never we, we, we spent like a month verifying the numbers before we invested. So we sort of could, really didn't believe them. And then if you retain for two years, I think it's sort of uh, 95% of from folks- year one to year two. From year one to year two. Uh, stick around. And so, you know, and the business to date, you know, they've got over 600,000 paying subs. Jeez. The business to date has just been uh, really mostly just written content. And so if you think about all of the different uh, areas they can go, they've, they've started doing audio now, start expanding into Europe. Uh, I'd imagine they would do video in the future. Um, so it's sort of this uh, very, uh, there's, there's a lot of ways in which the business just continues to grow and expand. And then sports is sort of the, there's a sense in which it's, and I don't hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. But mm-hmm. There's a sense in which, well, I won't get in trouble by you, but maybe by, <laughs> by somebody. Uh, there's a sense in which it's kind of a an anti media media company. In that, uh, in that, you know, there are a few of these legacy media company media brands. New York Times being one, they're going to do fine going mm-hmm. forward. But by and large, local newspapers are, are really kind of screwed. And yeah. the the driver of revenue for all of these local newspapers has been the sports section. That's what mm-hmm. drives all of the ad revenue. Um, and and so the question is, well, what's going to replace all of these local newspapers? And you know, we think it is it is going to be the athletic. Yeah. So this is super interesting because uh, my father um, recently uh, calls me and he goes, "Hey, I went to go read an article in uh, the newspaper of a very rural area in North Carolina. Like we're talking, can't be more than." 20,000 people live in this area, right? And that's probably being overly generous. And they've got a newspaper uh, and they've put up a paywall. And he said that he goes, he clicks on an article, right? And he gets hit with the paywall and he goes, there is a feature where you can pay 99 cents for the day, right? Because they literally have realized that people are not going to pay yeah. on a monthly basis. What do they just want to read the one article? So they're going to get their $1 and, and do it. And, and, and uh, he, he knows nothing about media, knows, you know, any of this stuff. He just was laughing at the fact that he's like, there's no way that that thing survives. Right. And part of it is uh, the quality. Some of it is just like what could possibly be going on there that you can't get somewhere else. Right. Kind of that idea of uh, you have to have content that other people don't have. But when you then look at it and you say, well, if something like The Athletic comes and takes away the need for me to check the scores. Right. And, and, and kind of that component, there's really no reason for it. Right. And, and yeah, maybe they write it about a local business or whatever, but but it changes the dynamic of this. And part of what I think to me is so interesting is not only the business model, but you're using the same uh, staff. You're actually going and taking their staff and just putting it in this new model, right? So you don't change the quality of the content. You just change in which the format in which you get it. And then you add in all these other cities, you know, all of their best writers, et cetera. It becomes pretty compelling pretty quickly. Very, uh, more, more importantly than that, it's really fun. It's just a really fun business. Uh, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun business to be involved with. I know that the team's having a, a ton of fun building it and, uh, 
we, we, we think the long-term trajectory looks more like a Netflix-type business. We'll, we'll see if we're right on a 10-year time horizon. So this brings into question kind of media in general. And before we started recording, we were talking about uh, kind of these new media models, right? So you see the Barstool Sports, you see the Athletic, um, things like uh, Substack have come out. Um, there's uh, Morning Brew is, is a large uh, email newsletter, et cetera. Do you guys kind of generally think that the old media model outside of maybe the New York Times and a couple of others goes away and gets replaced by somebody new? Or is this more of there's coexistence, there's the old models that work, and then there's new models that come along and kind of uh, carve out a different demographic? Like, how, how do you think about that as a, like a market dynamic? Well, you know, I'd say uh, you always want to sort of look to the past uh, as a way to sort of uh, help predict the future. And so one, one of the ways in which we like to, to do that is to sort of try and do these counterfactual uh, counterfactual thought experiments. And so I think when it comes to the media, uh, one could do a, a counterfactual experiment of if social media had existed um, 60 years ago, mm -hmm. um, would, the, uh, would we have all of the media institutions we have, would they've actually lost their credibility uh, a long time ago when sort of anyone can fact check an article, when uh, you know, CEOs can sort of have their own audiences and can, can publish their own, their own thinking and to, to their own audiences. And the public can decide who's more credible, sort of the the, the CEO or the the, the media, the, the journalist. Uh, that really that really changes the game. I think there's an interesting counterfactual thought experiment you could do on the impact social media has had, and and certainly I think it is uh, it's really screwed up the business models uh, for the media companies. Uh, and so in practice, what that means is I think we're now entering, we're already in it, but I think people are trying to key into we're in a realm where really what matters is reach. Uh, trust and uh and uh, and 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 your own differentiated sort of point of view and so i'm pretty uh convinced that we're entering it, media is going to just be increasingly decentralized mm -hmm. um and uh you know i, I maybe in 100 years the new york times is not even going to exist I, you know it's sort of a um a, sort of a they, they've they've often been critical of, of companies like facebook for having a you know dual class share structure and and which will enable mark to run it forever and you know, Salzburger also has the dual class share structure. The New York Times, he, he gets they get to run it forever, but uh, their forever might not might not be forever because I think that the ecosystem is really really disrupted. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a it's a totally new era, and I think that journalists are starting to realize it. And there are a lot of great journalists out there, and I think the really smart ones will do things like what Jessica's building with the information and the tech industry, what the athletics doing with sports. We were talking earlier about things like Substack that enable journalists to just build their own, build their own uh, business, business yeah. on a on a platform that gives them the tools needed to to do it. And I really do think we're we're heading in that direction. And then one of the other great developments I think is that um, the folks that are uh, written about uh, actually are able to tell their side of the story. And so you know you had I feel like the FedEx CEO letter. There was an article about FedEx in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the, the FedEx felt it was very inaccurate. And uh, the FedEx CEO uh, was able to sort of write a letter and, and get it uh, distributed. I think many more people read the, the letter from, from, from the CEO than, than read the actual Wall Street Journal article. He, cha he challenged <laughs> them to a debate, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they took him up on it. <laughs> yeah, of no, course not. Of course not, because they knew they would lose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you got, we had Dalio do this recently. There was a New York Times piece that he felt was, was very unfair. You know, he's got millions of LinkedIn followers. He wrote a response on LinkedIn. Uh, and I think increasingly... Uh, that's the world that we're we're entering, and I I don't think that that, that the media industry is is ready for it. So I'm yeah. quite worried about them. Well, and and I think part of this uh, is 
social media really has exposed um, the fact that these big journalistic institutions are run by humans, right? I mean, ultimately, what ends up happening is journalists for a very long time hid behind the fact of, you know, we are very objective. We don't uh, have bias. We don't have emotion. We have no kind of horse in this race. Uh, we just write the facts. And uh, that pretty much was accepted, right? I think a lot of people, if you go back, you know, 20, 30 years, people are like, yeah, that, that's true. And and they read whatever's in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden, even before kind of the CEOs and politicians, et cetera, realized that they could do this, you just started to get kind of data points that would get, um, you know, presented that all of a sudden, wait a minute, that doesn't jive with what was written, right? And so that kind of started people questioning things. What you're talking about now is, the ability of these platforms to just completely remove that middleman in telling the story, right? So whether it's the FedEx, you know, I mean, look, uh, if you take uh, in politics, you've got Trump and you've got AOC. They both do the same thing. They're on two different sides of the aisle. They just realize if I talk directly to people, no one can mix my words, right? This is what I want to say. Um, and so what it does, though, is it then brings into question at what point do we empower the people being written about too much, Right. If all of a sudden people now just listen to, you know, the FedEx CEO or, or some other leader, like who's there to fact check? Right. It's kind of the, the counterbalance to this because the media does serve a great purpose. And there are a lot of people who are full of shit. Right. And, and they do a great job of saying, no, you're full of shit. Here's the truth. Um, and so I, that's my fear. Right. It's like the writing's on the wall and kind of we know where we're going. But what's that counterbalance to kind of keep optimizing for truth because I think you it's possible to not just rotate back to the middle but actually over rotate in in favor of the people who were being written about and now they can just bullshit and, and kind of people just have to take them at face value I 100% agree with you this is a, a massive a massive risk and something I'm very concerned about as well um you know my hope and this is sort of the optimistic version would be that uh the the, the folks that do fact check and and public Publish truthful articles and can build their own businesses on platforms mm. like Subs. We're talking about a twenty-year time horizon. I'm hopeful that there will be trusted new brands and media uh, that are that are trusted to be a source of truth. I think the unfortunate reality of of what's happened is you've had these historically trusted media brands that have oftentimes published articles that are not wholly truthful, and mm. so you can't both be the arbiter of truth while also uh, publishing things that. That aren't truthful. And I would also note that not every uh, highly regarded media institution actually has fact checkers. And so one one interesting one interesting tidbit I learned about the New York Times from from some friends is they don't actually have fact checkers on staff. The journalists check their are, are, are fact check their own articles. And so I'm all for fact checkers. I would be very supportive of of uh, of, of every every media company doing extensive fact checking. The reality is. That does not happen today. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that in a more decentralized media environment, as this continues to develop, actually we can get more fact checking. There'll be people be more empowered to actually fact check. So I've I've got another framework that uh, this isn't fully fleshed out yet, but I've just started to to realize. So if you look uh, on a geographic basis, the Great Firewall in China has kept you know a billion plus people in the dark about what's going on in the rest of the world, right? To some yep. degree. Um, and either they have no clue something happens or they get pieces of the information, but it's stitched together in a story that uh, the government wants them to hear, right? The coronavirus is the first time that's been reversed, where now all of a sudden the rest of the world's like, what the hell is going on in China? And we either don't know or we're getting pieces of information that are being strung together and we're being told a story that they want us to hear. And it's really interesting because I don't think a lot of people have realized yet, like this is the everyday life of people in China with the rest of the world. When you reverse that, 
now all of a sudden everyone's up in arms like you have to tell us you know it's like we're we're the police of the world right but that is a really dangerous world to enter into where if this was not just a china thing this was in multiple places in the world whether vertical based in, in terms of industry or geographic based if you now start to get fed stories where you can't fact check, you can't actually get access to information, like that's a scary world to live in. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've never been to China and I have no plans on going. I think it would be a very scary place to, to be living, particularly now. And I, I feel absolutely horrible for the for the people there. But where are you going with this? Because you have this. So, so where, where does this theory take so, us? Let's let's jive on this for a moment. So my, my whole thought process is. You have a country that's got 1.2, 1.3 billion people, right? Yep. And it's becoming more and more important to the world. Uh, and the coronavirus is like something that grabs everyone's attention because there's kind of the fear-mongering aspect of it. It's health-related. There's people dying, right? All, all that kind of stuff. Well, it might actually be really, really bad. So yeah, yeah. I don't want to downplay it. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but what I mean is it, it's easy to grab people's attention even if the deaths aren't happening in the United States, etc. Right. right? It's just the fact that death grabs attention. Yes. But if you pull it to less important things like uh, technology, investing, businesses, you know, all this kind of stuff, there was a wave in like the 90s and into the 2000s, Carson Block and some of these guys like realized, hey, we're being fed bullshit, right? These companies are actually frauds and, and they brought them down. Um, but now all of a sudden there's like this resurgence of, you know, China's getting its act together, et cetera. The, there's a belief that it, like maybe we just are being fed the rose colored glass perspective, right? And maybe it's not actually what we think it is. And then if that's happening in China to the rest of the world, like could that actually be happening in the US, right? You know, it, it's um, one of the things that, uh, and I forget the exact data, um, I think it's the Federal Reserve has missed on GDP projections every single time they've ever estimated. Right. They're like, oh, for like 250 times or something. Yep. Which is fucking crazy. Right. That like at some point, just flip a coin, <laughs> you know, right. And, and you can at least get close. But then you start to look at now we also see things where like numbers get reported and all of this financial activity happens. Investments, stocks go, you know, up, down, sideways, whatever. But then they go back and they recalibrate the numbers, you know, a quarter later, two quarters later. But nobody talks about it. And so when you start to like unpack some of this stuff, it, it's almost like, is that intentional or is it just really hard to count, you know, in a highly complex environment? And so it leads to this idea that I start to just think around like, you literally have to fucking question everything. Correct. Right. <laughs> and like, that's not a world I think that most people are one well positioned to do. Like we actually don't have the skills as, especially in the United States, the, the skills to question everything because we're so used to just accepting information that we're given. But also too... If you question everything and you start to get answers you don't like, I think that that quickly jumps off a cliff that people just aren't thinking about, aren't ready for, et cetera. And this is everything from the Jeffrey Epstein type stuff all the way to, you know, literally what's going on with the, how many people have died? Like that, that should be pretty easy to measure, right? But there's numbers. I've literally seen 10x in variation of numbers. Like that's big fucking, you know, uh, spectrum. All the way to like, did a dude get killed or did he commit suicide in a government facility? Right. That had never had any, never had, <laughs> no one had ever died in that facility before, by the way. I think, I, I think, yeah. And, <laughs> like, and, and it's like, so. and, and like, I, I'm always, uh, if Plano was here, she, she would immediately be like, hey, stop doing the conspiracy theories, right? Uh, but like, it's getting it, dangerous. It's, yeah. But it's not so much conspiracy theories as it's, it's pulling back on this thread of like, if we have to question everything because the information we're being fed is questionable, 
where is the line? And I think what we're realizing is like there is no line, right? It's not just economic data. It's not, you know, information in stocks, whatever. Um, it's actually like a lot of different types of information. And so um, when you take away the trust in information, like I don't think we've had that before. So like where does that take us? I don't know. It, it's it's yeah, I I, I I don't think there's any way to predict where it takes us. I think the the, the lesson is uh, or at least the. The realization is we should have been questioning everything all along, mm. and so certainly um, that that should really sink in for folks that one one should have been questioning things um, for, for for all the previous that the boomers should have questioned things, yep. Gen X should have questioned things a lot more than they did, and uh, and I so I, I'm optimistic that uh, the fact that more and more people are keying into the fact that actually you need to form your own view of reality, you need to question what you're being told come up with your own answers, uh, hopefully will be positive. Now, the challenge is just uh, if you question every issue uh, that's out there, there are millions of different issues at any, any moment in time. It's and exhausting. So, right. And so we're you know the future is going to favor people who are able to actually very quickly sift out and filter yeah. out anything that's not relevant to like what they're trying to do in the world uh, and their, their family, their loved ones, what they're trying to build, what they're trying to do, their company, and be able to really key in on, okay, what are the like very important things that I need to get to a truthful view or a view that I believe on and, uh, and, 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 and really, really dig deep and, and review a lot of different sources and, and come, to your own, come to your own view. And so I think with individual processing power and ability to filter, th- filter out things that aren't important key in on the things that are, question them and get to your own view. Yeah, I think that is just table stakes for for existing as sort of a sovereign individual in today's world. And and uh, I don't know where it's going to lead us. Yeah. And, and so I, I want to make sure that I clarify, like, I'm not suggesting that everyone's lying about everything, right? Of course there's, not. There, there's plenty of people who actually just make mistakes. And, and one of the things that you guys have- I don't um, think counting's that hard, though, on the numbers yeah, thing. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> right. So like, th- that's where you get into kind of the narrative right. uh, mirage, if you will. Um, but but one of the things you guys have said, uh, going back to kind of more investing in, in uh, entrepreneurship, is uh, like the media forgets a lot of times that founders are human and humans make mistakes. And- um, that doesn't mean that if you make a mistake, like we shouldn't call you on it. We shouldn't say anything bad. But like there is this element of like it's OK to make a mistake. Right. And, and so how do you guys think about that internally and not even so much with your portfolio companies, just more of like tech was really good for a number of years and then it became like the bad people. Right. And like, oh, let's all go yell at these people. They're 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 being too successful. Right. So like, let's go attack them. Where's the line or like what's the framework to think through? Like, when is it no they did something bad versus they made a mistake and they should be able to kind of overcome that or or uh, at least make it right at some point. It's always case specific. Uh, and so, you know, whenever there's a thing, that, thing that's hyper case specific, you always want to try and come up with some sort of shortcut type formula. And on this specific question of sort of, you know, I guess we call it canceling founders would yeah. be sort of a, a terminology. The cancel culture. <laughs> the, the, the cancel culture as it relates to sort of the, these entrepreneurs. And and certainly there are, you know, there's certainly people in the world who, who should be, you know, who, who really have deserved, have been canceled. They've probably deserved it. And then I think there are probably a lot more who who probably haven't. And so if you sort of uh, so I want to start with a metaphor and then I want to get into a sort of shortcut uh, rule that maybe there are a few exceptions to. So the metaphor would be if you commit a crime, let's say you assault someone, uh, which I know you haven't done, but if so, it's theor- nor have I, but theoretically, if someone assaulted someone, they were arrested. It, jury trial, you know, you would go to jail, you would serve your sentence, 
Uh, and then I think most people would agree that once you're released from jail and you've served your time, you should be able to reintegrate back into society and, and live a life and, and sort of have an existence. And I think that's uh, if you're let out of jail, you, you sort of get to start again and, and you get mm -hmm. a second chance. Uh, there is no equivalent for cancel culture. And so uh, if you're canceled, uh, your life's permanently ruined. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter why you were canceled. Uh, it's just your life's over uh, and, and no one wants to talk to you anymore and you can't do anything else. And so it strikes me as really bizarre uh, that there's a second chance for ex-convicts, uh, but not for people that have been canceled. That seems really screwed up to me. So I think uh, so I'd love some sort of, uh, uh, you know, get out of jail option once you've been canceled. Unfortunately, I don't quite know what that is. And then I'd say the shortcut on this is, you know, one of the great, I've learned, you know, so many things from Peter Thiel. One of the great things I learned from him was that um, when you're evaluating the business model of a company, um, these laundry list type business models where it's like, well, we can monetize through advertising, through subscription, through selling the data. When there's a laundry list of different business models, it actually means there's just no business model and the company doesn't know how to make money. And I actually increasingly think this laundry list analogy can apply to the cancel culture stuff as well. And so I'm very skeptical when there's sort of a list of accusations that aren't all the same thing. And so if someone's been accused of you know, doing the same thing over and over again, like that, that's bad, probably bad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the case of something like Away, where you had the board try and cancel or the media tried to cancel uh, Steph Corey, the CEO, she's the, the CEO of the company, she's now back. Um, it was sort of this laundry list of mean things she'd said on Slack. And so it was like, well, she said this mean thing. And then she also, she also said this really mean thing. And, and then there's this other mean thing. And it was sort of a list of, of mean things that she said. Uh, and that made me sort of very skeptical of that as a cancellation. Now, she's now back. So that's a, a really positive development. If you rewind to when Travis was canceled from Uber, and uh, to be clear, disclose my bias up front, I am not a natural ally of, uh, of Uber or Travis. So <laughs> to be clear, you, uh, you were one of the biggest investors in Lyft and was literally on the board. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he, yeah, it was basically, uh, it was, it was yes, he, he caused me a lot of emotional trauma uh, uh, while I was on the, on <laughs> he, the Lyft. Lyft he, he was the formidable competitor that you talked about earlier. Correct. He, yes. <laughs> not never, even Uber, just Travis. You never want to compete against, it, it was actually tra Travis. And, and I think Emil was pretty good too, but you, you never want to comp compete, compete against Yes, but in any case, you know, the, the, the retrospectively, if you look back at the, the series of facts that led to him being ousted from Uber, uh, it was it had a very laundry list feel to it. It was sort of like, well, he was sort of was mean to this driver. And yeah, he sh it was really stupid. He shouldn't have said that. It was offensive. But, you know, I don't think it warrants being canceled from your company. You know, it was like, yep, there was a there was this culture of weird sexual harassment stuff. He wasn't directly implicated in any of that. Uh, no one tied anything back to him. Uh, there was sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, there was, was sort of other random accusations, but it had very much a laundry list feel to it. And so, whenever there's a laundry list of ac accusations, I'm I'm very skeptical of it. Uh, and uh, and then in certain cases, it it's justified. So certainly, you know, someone like Elizabeth Holmes, you know, I think that that was. I'm really glad that 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 story came out, and I, I think that was very positive for the world and. And uh, and was a positive development, and so it's always case specific. But uh, but I am very skeptical of the of of the laundry lists. A and B, uh, it strikes me as really screwed up uh, that it's sort of worse than going to jail if you're canceled. Mm -hmm. Well, and and going back to your metaphor about kind of there's a uh, bad thing that happens, then there's a trial, then there's jail, then there's like restart. Right? Yes, the cancel culture has like 
maybe bad thing that happened. And there's no trial by your peers. It's usually trial by somebody with bias or a Twitter mob. Right, yes, yeah, so a Twitter mob or, or or the media or whatever. And then very quickly, because people are looking for this stuff, it snowballs, right? So that's where you get kind of the mob mentality. But the two things that it doesn't have is like actual confirmation of like, did that happen or did it not? Did it happen in the way that it was said? Is it actually as bad as it was? Like the away stuff, literally, I, I think part of the reason why the CEO came back was because there was actually a bunch of people saying like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not that bad, right? So like, yes, she said it, but it's actually not that bad, right? And, and that's what you get in a traditional trial if somebody does something bad, uh, you know, crime or whatever. But then the other piece is like, there's no sentence, right? And I think this is what you're getting at where it's, it's one thing to, hey, you can't restart. But I actually think it's because there's no sentence. So in the criminal action, there's you're convicted and then you are sentenced. And that sentence is a very specific thing. You are going to jail. So you're going to go sit in this cell for three years. When you get out, your time is done. Right. It's kind of like when you put a kid in timeout. Right. You're going to sit there for five minutes. When you're done, it's over. Move on. In cancel culture, there's no sentence. And therefore, if there's no sentence, um, you get in a world where like everyone has their own idea of the sentence. Right. It's, you know, that person should not be allowed to ever participate in building a company ever again. And other people think, well, if you sit out for a year, then, OK, you've kind of served your time, quote unquote, you should be able to come back and everything in between. If you don't have the sentence, you can't get the restart. Right. And so, like, it's not a crime. So you can't use like the legal system. But I, I agree with you that um, that is a missing component, which prevents people from being able to restart unless you're somebody like a Travis who literally just says, I'm going to sell my Uber stock. I'm going to take my money. I'm going to go build another company and like, good luck, try to compete with me. Right. I, I think that's the only thing you can do because if you don't have that sentencing component, you know, if you and I disagree on how long that person should be punished, then there's no right answer. That's right. But I will say that I think the tides are turning. And so there are a few, okay. few, a few, few cautiously optimistic signs here. So I'd say one, I think the Steph Corey case uh, mm. with Away was a case where she sort of she fought back and she 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 sort of won the fight. And so I think the lesson one can take away from that is if people are trying to cancel you and you and you, and you as an individual, one as an individual doesn't believe it, the grounds are valid. You need to fight back and you need to get your allies to fight back with you. And so it's sort of fighting back against the the cancel culture. I think we now have a data point, at least in a tech entrepreneur concept, that it, that it actually can work. Mm -hmm. Moreover, I think um, you know people in powerful positions uh, are are starting to key into the fact that actually, oftentimes, it's quite unfair. And so, perhaps patient zero for sort of the Twitter cancellation um, in sort of tech tech adjacent industry would have been like, do you remember Justine Sacco? She'd been the she was an IAC. She she was a PR person at IAC. She was going on a long flight to South Africa. Oh, and she tweeted yes. this sort of very off color, you know, it's not a joke that I would ever tweet. It was sort of obviously mm -hmm. really bad judgment, sort of off color joke. And uh, was just, she'd been on, it was on this 14 hour flight or something. She lands and checks her Twitter. She was fired. And it was like literally retweeted a hundred thousand times or something. And mobs came after she was fired. She was uh, from IAC. She was just rehired uh, by Match, which is an IAC mm -hmm. company. Uh, to lead up, lead their PR. Now it was sort of like a, you know, nine or ten years of of basically having to live in purgatory. Mm. But uh, but she's been brought back to the company that uh, you know, a subsidiary of the company that fired her. And so I do have hope that that this is actually some starting to change. Mm. Uh, and uh, and 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 it's just up to everyone. It's up to all of us to you know. Sometimes it's valid, and and then we have to really question. Uh, we have to really question every case as a as a unique sort of situation and 
people who are being canceled need to fight back if they think it's unfair. Yeah. And and part of where this gets like a really slippery slope is it's one thing for you and I as adults, like we have brains that are fully developed, right? We can make our own decisions. Hopefully we are smart enough to not do dumb shit, right? And all this kind of stuff. But if you take a 16, 17, 18 year old kid, right? I mean, how, how many kids have, uh, the story that um, really blew me away was uh, there were some kids, I think he, uh, a couple of them got accepted to, it was like Harvard or something. Uh, and then I don't remember all of the details, but I think they had either racist tweets or something like that, that came back and actually got their scholarships revoked or their admission revoked, right? Now, guess what? Racist is really bad, right? And they should not have said that, et cetera. Right. But how many 16-year-old kids across the country of all races have said something, whether they were joking or not, right? Well, it was just that social social media wasn't around to document it, right? And so, like, there's a whole generation of kids that are now growing up where they're, frankly, they're immature, right? Their, their brains aren't developed. Like, like, there is some question of if we are going to document everything everyone does – where is the line? And the the sad part is like, I actually don't know, right? If I was sitting there as that administrator at Harvard or, or whatever the school was and had to make that decision, I don't remember all the facts, right? But like, I don't know how I would think about that. I don't even know if I have a framework to think through that. And so the cancel culture affecting adults who make adult decisions later in their career, like that's one whole bucket. There's a whole nother bucket for essentially kids, right? I mean, how many kids are putting dumb stuff on TikTok right now and is going to surface it, you know, five years from now and they get fired from their job. They don't get accepted to a school, whatever. Like, is that fair? I don't know. Right. But like that, that's a whole nother component of this that I think just isn't part of the mainstream conversation, but will eventually have to be entered into that conversation because it's a reality of the of the world we're living in. Yes. And I would argue that this whole the, the cancel culture stuff is sort of an outgrowth of sort of the woke uh, movement. And uh, there's a sense in which you can think about sort of wokeism as a, as a religion, um, just as Christianity is a religion. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm not Christian, but I, I do know that Christianity provides for uh, people. People are sinners and, and they make mistakes. You can sort of repent for, for your sins and 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 you can still be, be a good be a good person, and mm-hmm. and that doesn't exist in wokeism. So if you sort of if you if you if you screw screw up and are canceled, uh, there is no second chance. So certainly in the children context, uh, that's that's very dangerous. So if you sort of think about who the teachers in the schools are, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think tend to be somewhat um, in public in many of these institutions, many of these leading uh, universities and 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 private schools, etc. Uh, it, it's there's a sense in which wokeism is kind of becoming the religion, and I think there's some very valid attributes to it. But at the same time, uh, there, there it's a uh, it is it is sort of a uh, a very uh, rigid religion, and uh, and 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 we don't have any sense of what the what the long term consequences are going to be. Yeah, I, I think you and I agree on on the idea of like the world tries to make things black and white, and it's just not black and white. That's right, right? and and so it's like case specific. It's very gray, um, and. Uh, and we have to be aware of what's happening because it affects everybody in all these different ways. Uh, and if you don't talk about kind of what's happening, then, you know, it just runs wild, frankly. Um, moving on, uh, another thing you guys think a lot about, um, and I've seen you tweeting about, is uh, growth valuations being heavily, heavily overvalued. Uh, that's not very popular opinion <laughs> uh, in many circles. Where, where is that coming from? And kind of how do you think about that? Sure. So, you know, um, look, here, here's the reality of what's happened. So uh, you, you sort of got uh, it, it, it's, it's very hard to get a return on, on one's capital today in this environment. So it's sort of like, well, how are you going to get a return on your money? And uh, sort of a, a one, one sort of place where over the last number of years, f- folks have been able to generate a good return 
uh, has been in venture capital and in in, in particular uh, you know growth stage and 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 some some extent seed stage. So what you've seen is over the last seven eight years. Tons of capital, hundreds of billions of dollars, have flown into the asset class. There are like hundreds of new funds that are getting that are getting formed every uh, you know every every few months or so. And uh, basically, in order to like scale up a venture fund from having a few hundred million dollars to having billions of dollars under management, uh, you actually have to um, you have to actually deploy the capital. You actually have to invest invest invested in things, and so. You actually have this weird adverse incentive where you have these firms that are just trying to scale their assets under management, uh, such that uh, they they they're they're investing in companies at, at valuations that are pretty crazy. And SoftBank was sort of the the modal example, um, and 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 I think that you know maybe had had somewhat of an impact. Uh, they're obviously good growth stage companies, but but yeah, I do think they're generally generally pretty overvalued. And sort of the the broader the broader point that I'd make is a lot of the things that we call tech, we've called tech companies over the past few years, aren't actually tech companies. And so certainly, a lot of the fintech stuff. And I am, I am pretty bullish on fintech. I, I sort of led the Series C and New Bank at Founders Fund. We've done a lot of fintech investing at at Bedrock. But a lot of the fintech companies, their product is just money. And uh, if you're selling money, uh, that's not really a tech company that should. Mm-hmm. That should warrant a tech valuation. You know, same thing can be said for the the D 2 C brands. You know, WeWork was not a, a tech company. They tried to put sort of a technology gloss over it, and 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 and, and these businesses have been able to command these tech valuations at the growth stage because you have so much capital uh, in the venture asset class uh, that 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 is looking to get deployed. You know, the other sort of perverse way in which this manifests is um, one thing that sort of people generally understand in venture capital is there are actually only a few dozen really good venture capitalists that have sort of generated uh, the vast majority of the returns. So I became a VC in 2012. I think at the time there were sort of, you know, 10 or 11 who I thought were really good. At this point, there's maybe 30 who I think are sort of really good investors have generated the majority of the returns for their firms. But uh, there's only so many opportunities. That's right. right. There's only so many opportunities. There's only some people that are actually that are actually good at this. And yet, to actually scale up the assets under management at a firm, you have to scale the team. And so, basically, what we've seen happen uh, is these teams just become huge. In fact, a friend of mine uh, is a great investor. Uh, she's a partner at a, a very large VC firm. I think they have something like 20, 30 partners. And wow. I was looking at their website the other day and going through the partners. And uh, I think only uh, three of the 20 plus partners uh, have really ever made any investments. And so, there's all of these managing partners. That haven't actually made any investments, but the firm manages, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And I think that actually, uh, you just, yeah, you, you need to hire these people so that you can raise the money. But of course, uh, of course, you can't actually let them invest because that, that would ruin the strategy. Sort of like art pieces hanging on the wall. And so, I would sort of encourage encourage anyone uh, considering becoming a VC. Are, are you going to be a an art piece on the wall to uh, to, to to help the firm? Uh, raise more money, are you going to actually be able to to invest? Because that's the only way to learn how to do this. Yeah. And, and this leads into, uh, you, you've said a bunch of times, like the overhype uh, component of like becoming a VC early in your career, right? It used to be a thing where, hey, go be an entrepreneur, have a successful exit, get some money, then go decide you want to be an uh, investor, kind of do that later in your career. Um, and, uh, and then at that point, like you've almost earned the right to do this. Now, 
I mean, there's literally kids that are in, you know, early uh, years of college saying my goal is to be a VC, right? Like right out of school, I want to go work at a venture firm. Um, how do you think about like, what's too early? What's not? Is it a case by case thing? Like, like what's kind of the thought process if you're talking to a young kid about uh, who wants to go do that? Yeah, look, it's always case by case. So, I mean, in order to be successful as a VC, A, you need to be able to make investments. So everyone we hire on the investment team at Bedrock is empowered to make investments. So that's sort of part one. So I think if you're a young person looking to be a VC, you should join a firm where you will be allowed to make investments. So that's sort of the gating factor. Uh, and then I think to be successful as an investor, you need three things. You need access to great companies. You need to pick the companies uh, correctly, uh, and you need to uh, you need to w- win, win the deal. Uh, and then, yeah, of course, you also need to be right uh, over over time. If you're sort of a young person coming out of college, uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to have great intuitions on what businesses are going to really work. It's very unlikely you're going to have sort of differentiated access to companies. And it's very unlikely you're going to be able to win the deal. And so, I think in practice, a lot of young folks can spend years and years in VC supporting you know senior partners mm. never making any investments you might end up getting a title as sort of a managing director like you know a lot of these folks at my friend's firm uh and spend eight plus years there and, and never actually make an investment but that's not a very fulfilling uh f- very fulfilling career i mean what we love what gives us energy at bedrock every day is we get to spend all day uh meeting with brilliant founders deciding whether we want to invest in something uh, all, all over the world, um, all different industries, all different sectors. That's really exciting. I think running spreadsheets and 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 writing market research reports for a sort of you know random managing director, not a very exciting career path. So that'd be part one. I'd say part two of why I'm sort of skeptical of it uh, is because it's become uh, the hot thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, definitionally, it's 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 probably quite overhyped. And then finally. Um, there is a sense in which it's a pretty comfortable thing to do. Uh, and so you sort of start doing it. It's, it's very comfortable. Um, you know, a lot of folks don't work very hard who are VCs. That's not true of everyone. Certainly we, we like working and we work very hard, but not everyone does. So it gets very comfortable. But the, the lessons you learn as a venture investor, they actually aren't really applicable uh, to, to many other things. And so you're not going to learn how to operate a company uh, if, you're, if you're a VC. Uh, you're not going to learn how to code a piece of software if you're a VC. Uh, you're not, uh, at most firms, you're not really going to learn about things we were talking about earlier, like how to, how to question narratives and how to actually, that's not what most VC firms will, will teach you. Now, there are a few exceptions. You know, there's mm-hmm. places like us and founders and there are exceptions to this. But I think generally it's, it's, uh, it's a suboptimal track for most folks. Unless you join Bedrock, in which case it's, it's a good idea. <laughs> and, well, and, and you talked about like as an investor, and I've always felt this way of like the job of smart people, or usually some of the smart people in the industry coming in and then teaching you about something is pretty fucking incredible, right? Uh, in that interaction, uh, I saw you tweet and say that uh, there's some people who say to founders, "Don't argue with the investor." Right. Like basically go in, pitch and like don't get in an argument. You took the opposite track, which I actually agree with. It's no, no, no. That's part of the fun of the pitch. Right. Is wait a minute. I'm calling bullshit on this or I don't understand this. And and the back and forth kind of teases out more information. Why? Why do you think other people say don't argue? And then kind of how do you guys use that debate or or lively discussion to your advantage if other people aren't going to do it? Huh. Interesting. Well, I, I don't want to speak for the other people. What I will say for us is, uh, you know, 
through getting into a spirited debate, uh, you actually can get to the truth about about different things. And so you can push back on elements of the pitch as an investor and hear how the founder responds. Then you sort of unpack the answers and you ask follow-up questions. And it's a way to actually get to the truth. A, B, a two-way conversation uh, or a three, four, five-way conversation is much more fun than just having someone talk at you. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of the things that I think is just true in one's career is you want to optimize for having a lot of fun. And so if, if you're doing something where you're not having fun, uh, that doesn't make any sense. It's certainly just a purely selfish reasons. We find it fun to debate. Uh, we like debating with founders. We like being proven wrong. We like hearing better arguments than, than, our, than our point of view. Um, and we can oftentimes get convinced. I mean, founders have convinced me of opportunities I thought were crap uh, through getting into these spirited debates and actually um, getting me to change my position. Uh, I think, you know, the, a key marker of someone who's uh, sort of curious and intelligent is like you're able to change your mind uh, if, if, if someone makes a compelling argument. And that's uh, a shocking idea in today's society. It, it, like, it, like that's <laughs> called, that's called flip flopping. You can't do that, right? Well, I'm a notorious I'm a notorious flip flopper. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but it, but it goes back to this idea of like intellectual honesty, right? Yeah. And if you are actually intellectually honest with yourself, the things that you actually have high conviction on and are willing to like argue to the death, there's very very few of them. Right. And if you are presented with new information, why would you not change your mind? Right. It's almost like you, you flip it and you're like, wait a minute, you're an idiot if you don't change your mind, if you're given new information that proves your previous thought process was probably not accurate. Yes. Now, that is true. Certainly in a pitch context, you have to be careful about changing your mind too often once you've made an investment. So this is one failure mode that I've, I've actually been guilty of in the past where you sort of make an investment. There's a period of time where things don't go very well, and it's very easy to just skew hyper negative. And this is sort of, I think, a lot of the psychology around Bitcoin as well as you know, so people, mm -hmm. the psychology can just shift very dramatically from positive to negative. And so you need to actually just have a very, you do need to have high conviction in the long term trajectory of a company you invest in, and uh, and and then you just have to be you know, as the facts change, you take them into account. But generally, I think you want, um, you know. Uh, moderate opinions strongly held once you're an investor and you want uh, you want strong opinions weakly held before you invest the first time we met in person uh we had a great conversation and uh when i was walking out the door you said something nice i forget whatever it was and i was like ah, i just got lucky and you immediately snapped back with there's no such thing as luck <laughs> and uh it's something that uh, I actually feel very strongly about this, um, and I agree with your sentiment. Huh. Um, but it's not socially acceptable to say that. Well, this is a tricky one to unpack. So first of all, uh, whenever I say there's no such thing as luck, uh, it's always off the record. So it takes like it's off the record. Now it's now on the record. That's okay. We're, we're going to roll with this. It's now on the record. So my my off the records of the and again you know uh, uh, so this is you know one of the I did not know it was off the so record it was off the record so <laughs> well, I would never I would never say that on the record but in any case I did say it to you off the record and it was in a specific context and basically here's 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 what I think about luck so I think you need to look at it uh, uh, sort of through a sociological lens so basically my my current view of it is um, uh, people who are um, People who are not successful, people who have not been able to achieve what they want in life, ascribe everything to luck. Mm -hmm. that, that's incorrect. So it's like, oh, it's all just luck and I'm an unlucky person. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think there's people who um, who are successful but don't feel um, that, they, uh, that, they are, uh, that they are 
fully successful or fully made it, sort of like a chip off one's shoulder mm-hmm. type type vibe. In which case, um, in which case, uh, also, uh, um, uh, there's no luck. There's no such. Thing. I think that's there's no such thing of luck as, as luck. And I think both you and I are are, are people who uh, who are, are, are very ambitious, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I think it's a healthy mentality. Uh, I think it's even if there is such a thing as luck, which I, I do believe there is, to be clear on the record. I think the right a healthy mentality as you're as you're building something, and if you're very ambitious, you're trying to make real impact on the world, is to have the mentality at least that uh, you make your own luck. There's not some sort of uh, preordained uh, uh, magical lottery ticket that's gonna mm-hmm. that's gonna that's gonna fall on your lap. But then I I think that actually the the best the people who've really made it. Um, and who and who are sort of clear-eyed about it, I would acknowledge uh, that, 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 that their luck does play some role. And so, so the way I think about this is uh, pre being born, post being born. Okay, right. And pre being born, there's a lot of things, a lot of luck that goes into it, right. Kind of uh, the ovarian lottery type yep. thing, right. And so where you're born, what language you speak, the color of your skin, the the socioeconomic situation you're born into. Like, there that's all luck right in terms of uh yeah there's some math probability but it, but it's luck you're given a, a deck of cards is kind of how i think about it once you're given the deck of cards from there there's very little if no luck right and it being the things that are outside of your control all happen pretty much before you're born right and i think that when people take this paintbrush and say no luck all luck right whatever Again, it doesn't kind of account for, no, you and I and many people listening to this are super, super lucky because most people who are listening to any kind of audio content, right, totally. just naturally are in a way better position in life than majority of the humans on this planet. So there, there's kind of a, here's your starting point, whether it's good, bad, or, or in between. But then from there, there's very specific things that occur, right? I'm one of these people who believes that um, even when it's not in your control, so like uh, the the family environment, right? Somebody's making decisions that isn't quote unquote luck, right? It's somebody somewhere is making a decision that then puts you in that situation and what you do with it ends up being the actions you take. And so it's, it's almost like this taboo thing where uh, luck gets, again, that paintbrush. But if you look at it that way, now all of a sudden, like you said, it's kind of this mentality component, but also it changes behavior, right? And I think that's the key piece of it where there's a lot of people who sit around and and when they have the mentality of luck, 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 the action follows or the lack of action usually yes. follows, right? Whereas if you go into it with the mentality of there is no luck, I had luck to be the starting place I was. Now there is no luck. It's all on whether I accomplish something or not. Uh, the action does follow. And, and there's this great book um, that uh, I, I used to keep it as a secret and not tell people about this book because I was like, oh, this is a, a fucking advantage in life. But now uh, lately I've started to tell a lot of people about it. So in 2013, this guy, Tim Grover, wrote a book called Relentless. Okay. Tim Grover is uh, a dude, he played uh, college basketball, got hurt, uh, says, you know what? Rather than be uh, a basketball player in the NBA, I'm not going to make it. Uh, I want to train those guys. And so uh, one of his first clients ever was he went to uh, the Chicago Bulls and he called every single player other than Michael Jordan. And he said, well, that guy's the best in the world, so he doesn't need me. I'll call everybody else. Long story short, he becomes Michael Jordan's trainer and he gets a chance. The Chicago Bulls staff says, you can come uh, and he'll work with you for like 30 or 90 days, some short period of time. 
And uh, in the first meeting, Jordan's basically like, you know, who the fuck are you, right? <laughs> you know, I'm the best player in the world. What are you going to do for me? And lays out an exact plan. And uh, they end up working together for 20 years, right? He then becomes the trainer to Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade. Like every single top NBA player in the world goes to this guy. And some of them are every week they work with them. Some of them are don't talk to him for three years. I need you right now. Fly to where I am and like help me for two days type thing. And in the book, he lays out there's three types of people. Um, there's, uh, I think, a clean, or I think he calls it a cooler, a closer, and a cleaner. Hmm. And he goes, a cooler is just somebody who is basically happy to be there, right? They're happy to be in the NBA. It's great. If uh, we're at the, towards the end of the game, tell me the play coach, and you know I'll go try my best. And where's the party at after the game type attitude? A closer is somebody who says, hey, coach, uh, give me the ball. And if I'm open, I'm going to shoot. If you're open, I'll pass you the ball, right? But a cleaner, he's like, is going to fucking take the shot, right? No matter what, they're going to create the situation. They're going to take the shot. They're going to win the game. And there's no question. Nobody in that huddle is questioning it, et cetera. And what he goes on to talk about is those are also the guys at during the offseason who realize practice should be harder than the games, right? It's not that, oh, practice, let's go take some shots and then go home and like, I'll turn it on for the game. No, I'm going to actually work harder in practice than I do in the game. So the game's easy. And he, he goes through this idea and, he, and it's uses the term cleaners, but the whole thing is around everyone else thinks, oh, he turned it on for the game. He got lucky in the game. The ball bounced his way this time. Like all of those kind of sports metaphors that are used all the time yep. are associated with this idea of luck, right? And he doesn't talk about luck in the thing, but that's basically what he's talking about. But he goes, there's very select few cleaners that when they walk in the gym, everyone knows that's a cleaner and that person's here. And no matter what happens in this game, they're in control. And I think that applying that type of attitude and mentality like to the rest of life completely changes the actions that people take. And that's where like this idea of like, quote unquote, there's no luck. When you apply it in that framework, all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, I do fucking believe that. It's a right? very, it's a very healthy, very healthy frame of mind to have. And back to your just a deck of cards metaphor, it's it's about how you play the hand you're dealt. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a great way to look at it. Um, what are you excited about, kind of moving forward in the uh, in the tech role? What what is one or two areas where you're like, no one's talking about it, but we think that there's you know incredible opportunity there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I never, I always, I always refuse to answer this. I always refuse to answer this question. But uh, why? Wait, why do you refuse? Well, you, you always want to refuse to answer the question because um, if it's an area that, uh, if it's an area that, uh, uh, if it's an area that we're excited about, um, definitionally we haven't found the right company to in, to invest in yet. Okay. And so, uh, you know, here, here, here's some thoughts. One, I, I do think there is a lot more. Uh, on the sort of enabling infrastructure side of things, you just had the plot acquisition by Visa. Stripe is a phenomenal company. Uh, we think there's more like that, uh, that, 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 that these can be very valuable companies sort of enabling infrastructure uh, in, in fintech or in, in other areas can be, can be very, very valuable. Um, you know, I'd say too is, I do think there will be a new wave of consumer, uh, consumer internet applications. And I think most people have just said consumers dead all of the energy, all of the heat is on enterprise SaaS. Um, those are the business, to be clear, those are the businesses today that are working. They mm -hmm. are mostly enterprise SaaS businesses and we have a number of investments there. Uh, but I, I just think for a lot of the, a lot of the consumer internet applications um, are, are somewhat broken. There's gotta be a new wave and it, it might actually just take decentralization to make it happen. So it might be 10 years away, but I'm, I'm, op I'm optimistic on that. 
and then there's always the question of uh of 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 what can you do on the on the biotech side of things to sort of make people healthier and certainly with coronavirus there's a this sort of heightened heightened interest on my end in 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 uh in, in that whole world um but in practice the companies end up uh, not actually being that valuable and so it's sort of like you get to a milestone you sell it to a pharmaceutical company so it's a question of uh, is there some way that these companies can, can get more valuable? So there are a few things we're thinking about right now. Is that a capital problem? Like, like the access to capital is just not there for them to scale past, and they have to sell. Or, or what, what do you think? It, it's sort of like a, it's it's very hard to build a build a build a, pl- a drug platform. It's sort of everyone's everyone pitches that, and then in practice, it's it, it's re- it's really hard to actually do. Um, yeah, I, I think it is a you know somewhat of an access to capital problem. I think it's also in many cases uh, a founder mentality type problem. And so there aren't that many founders that have sort of a internet uh, software, Silicon Valley uh, type type mentality to building building a, a biotechnology business. So if you find a founder that actually does have that mentality, uh, that's probably a, a really good investment to make. For sure. Um, any words on a uh, Bitcoin? In, in terms of like, uh, well, I think every, how you guys think about it. I mean, I, I think anyone who anyone can afford to own some should should have should have some Bitcoin. So I, I sort of I think that's pretty pretty common, pretty common wisdom. I mean, we think of it as just a, an ultra long term hold thing where you sort of want to just have it and hold it and not really not check the price for sort of you know I haven't checked the price for in, years. <laughs> I haven't checked the price in a long time, and I, I, we sort of don't want to check the price for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thanks, Rob. Where, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, although I'm, I am trying to use it less. Uh, and, uh, 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 for all the, especially now that that I, of all the controversial things I've said on this podcast, uh, just Glu, uh, uh, J U S T G L E W, and you can find us at uh, bedrockcap.com. All right. Uh, before I let you go, I always ask everybody about aliens. Are you a believer? Um. Yes, you know, I, I, I definitely, uh, I, I definitely think it's, it's, it's more likely than not. What is the logic as to why you believe? Uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not an easy logical sort of train of thought to deconstruct. I'd say that um, it's actually pretty irrational in that my favorite book as a young person was contact and uh i uh, uh i i want I, w- I want to believe that uh there are these fr- these friendly aliens and it seems more likely than not that given the vastness of the universe there should be should be intelligent life somewhere else out there i've asked this question to over 220 people and you're the first person to basically say regardless of the logic or not i want it to be true which i actually think is a very honest view and many other people probably that's why they believe um overwhelmingly people say yes that it's likely um but you're the first person to say it that way we, we always try and be always try and be honest the the uh, uh yes always got to try and be honest Hi- hypocrisy is uh hypocrisy is is uh is is not a good not a good look <laughs> <laughs> i love it man all right well listen thanks so much for coming to do this and uh, we'll definitely have to do it again my pleasure thank you hey everyone pop here If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.